You are in deep focus. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman. It's part two of the three parts of a program from November 4th, 2013. Melvin Gibbs, my guest in the studio. This entire three-hour broadcast is one of four broadcasts on the topic of Ronald Shannon Jackson, who had just passed away about two weeks before this in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, his hometown. And uh, Shannon Jackson, a, a, an enormously uh, influential character in all of the guests and me, your host on these programs. Uh, and uh, we all we all were captivated by his musical ideas and uh, by the person that he was both utterly unique, as you'll hear in all of these shows. I think it's a total of 11 programs, so of which this is number three. All right, you got all that? Uh, <laughs> let's go to the studio right now. I'm so excited to share this with you. Melvin Gibbs, talking about that period of time, talking about really getting into the nuts of how that, what was special about that band, and shining a light on an aspect of the history of his music and the music as a larger topic that I don't think is documented any place. And also uh, the music that you'll hear is not really documented. This band, a lot of the music that we're talking about, um, well, there were a whole series of albums. The albums Man Dance and Barbecue Dog were really this particular version of the band. And live performances of this group barely exist. This is a very rare opportunity to hear, get a glimmer of what this band sounded like live. So this is, uh, I'm always talking about how important this one is. Well, <laughs> here we are again. Okay, enjoy the show. This is Melvin Gibbs on Ronald Shannon Jackson, part two of three, November 4th, 2013. The same reaction from the people. People would be way into it or, you know, or way into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, and, and I, I know, uh, I know that happened a lot, in particular in Europe. Mm. And, you know, see, I wasn't with you at that time, but I was, I, I went the next time around mm. and I knew what the level of expectations were. And they were high. They were yeah. incredibly high. Yeah. I mean, you know, he had, it was, you know, it was, as I was saying, it was the band was kind of at its peak. He, he had, you know, a good set of guys who kind of understood what, at that point, we all kind of understood what he wanted musically and we understood how to insert our personalities into what he was doing so it was this weird well not weird it was really like a band you know everybody was saying what everybody was expressing themselves but they were also expressing you know Shannon's vision and stuff I want to unpack that a little bit you gave us a great kind of baseline level of what you and to some extent some of the other guys in the band brought going in mm -hmm. how did we go from that to what we just heard? Well, there was a bunch of different processes. I mean, for me personally, it was definitely a learning experience because after giving that long preface of how it wasn't r really harmonic music, I mean, it's definitely from the harmonic tradition, so even the way the charts are written are sort of, you have to find your own way through it, so I, for one, had to learn how to find my, way on, my own way through the music and figure out the harmonies, I mean, that's one of the things you can hear from the different eras of the band. It's a different 
sets of people would harmonize his melodies differently. And basic, basically, uh, the first set of guys, especially when it was me and Bruce, we basically kind of, we were both really into uh, world music at that time, ethnic music. I mean, one of the things we used to do, I, I remember on tour, one of our mates, me and Bruce would always go record shopping together. That's one of the yeah, things that, we would yeah. do. And uh, our main spot was this record store on Champs-Élysées called, that was called Lido Music, which specialized in records by the French national label, Okora Records. We're, we're in Paris now. Yes. Come along with us. And uh, the French national record label had the most extensive collection of field recordings of any probably record label other than maybe UNESCO comes close, but because the French were all up in Africa, they had all the, the, the stuff that me and Bruce were interested we're in. We're talking Francophone, West Africa. Yeah, Francophone, West Africa. And, you know, so me and Bruce would go in there and we would spend, I don't know, half a week's pay. Our yeah. records. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was no joke, man. Yeah, that was... You know, we would come out of there with, you know, 30, 40 records at a shot. You know what I mean? And you still it, have them? Uh, some of them, you know, it's like, that's a couple of girlfriends ago now. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has yeah. them. <laughs> if they weren't yeah. smashed in the, you know, whatever. <laughs> I love you all. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, we, we would buy these records and that's kind of, we would spend time listening to them and we would take a lot of those uh, rhythmic and melodic ideas when we would use them. So we had this kind of real sort of droney, trancey thing that we would do to Shannon's melodies that was a little bit different than what the later guys would do with it. This, I'm curious, because uh, listeners might have a certain set of things that they associate that with of more contemporary pop music from those places, but... Or you're talking about more. I'm talking about field recordings, folkloric, yeah, folkloric, traditional, traditional stuff, and the way you know the traditional fiddle would sound, or the kind of repetitions that they would do on a traditional drum set, you know, like which is it. very related yeah. to the pop stuff. It's related to the pop stuff, but the pop stuff is, well, that's a whole another historical thing. I mean, a lot of the pop stuff is based off of the the rumba stuff. A lot of the pop African pop guitar music is actually based off of Cuban music, which is a long interesting story the same way a lot of the other African pop music is based off of you know reggae or whatever but the traditional music is all deeply polyrhythmic in its own and each area had its own particular take on how they would put the rhythms together and how they would layer the melodies on top of the rhythms and you can hear that in the songs that there's a lot between the bass and whatever guitar or whatever there's a lot of multi-dimensional weaving going in and out as far as what the different instruments are doing over the course of a you know, four minute piece. It's going all over the place, but it's it's not at all random. We can't we know what we're doing there. Yeah, so this is you and Bruce Johnson both playing bass. And how did you how how did you convey the ideas from these records you're listening to into what you were doing? Well, you know, it's kinda like if you have a thing, let's say you have a thing where there are four drums are playing. I mean, the drum, that's that's something I had to learn early on playing with Shannon. The drum actually is a melodic instrument. Each drum is tuned to a note. And uh, once you kind of figure that out and you figure out what notes the drums are tuned to, then you can figure out, you can decide to harmonize with the drums in the Western way or you can decide to harmonize 
create a counter harmony with it, in it, which allows actually the drums to speak a lot more than they would if you were just playing like to the melody. So it's kind of a variation of the basic harmonic idea. I was going to say it sounds like a very harmonic concept. Yeah, well, you know, the whole thing with harmonic is, you know, I remember Blood said we were talking about playing free, and Blood said free is not harmonic. You need a melody to play harmonic, and uh, that's pretty much the case. You, you you're you're always playing to a melodic figure, but because we had uh, developed this thing with the drums, we kind of you know Vernon used to call it rhythmic, which is we were playing against the rhythm as well as the melodic figure. So, and each one kind of had equal importance in terms of what as a bass player we're doing. And that's the thing also as a bass player. Bass, bass player, in a sense, if you look at it from the standpoint of how it got transposed from Africa, essentially you're a drum. You're just playing that, you're playing that, low, that low figure because in a lot of the traditional African music, the melody actually comes from the, from the lowest instrument, not from the highest instrument. What's actually moving around is the, 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 top, the higher instruments will stay static, but the bass is what keeps moving. So me and Bruce took, a, took that idea as well and we used it a lot. So the bass is always, you know, it's, it's always moving around. You might hear certain things that kind of sound semi-static in the middle, you know, depending on, because, you know, a lot of times Vernon would be the one who would be kind of doing the drone thing in that end, but me and Bruce would be kind of sliding around a lot on the bottom. So it was, which would give Shannon enough room to uh, do whatever he wanted. And one of the things that was interesting for me when I, you know, back in the early days after uh, Burn Nix introduced me to Shannon, I remember the first couple of rehearsals, you know, again, thinking back to those old days, playing through Jamaluddin's amp, trying to play with Shannon, thinking to myself, it is, I don't know how I'm going to be heard over this guy. He's just <laughs> right. so powerful, you know. <laughs> That's, talk about that. Talk <laughs> about what what it meant when about Shannon's kit when he sat behind it yeah. what came out of it this was not an earthly experience no I mean Shannon was you know in a sense old school I mean so those those guys of that generation how you tuned your drums was very important what note you tuned it to and and his drums his, drums, his drums were not and his drums were he in the beginning he had that that Ludwig kit that you know was really unique sounding and then he got the Pisces and after he worked the Pisces he got his thing into the Pisces and the sonar, sonar no, excuse me the sonar symbol sonar drums and Pisces symbols excuse me guys for you drummers yes they were sonar <laughs> drums not so yes not Pisces drums anyway the point being is the first couple of rehearsals I was kind of perplexed because I was playing these things you know these lines that theoretically worked in other contexts that just weren't working at all and you know at first I was kind of like uh I think I need a new amp but then I was kind of like, well, obviously Jamaluddin's playing through this amp. Obviously he's being heard, so it's something about what I'm playing. So what I ended up doing with Shannon, I can't remember if it was Shannon's idea or my idea. I assume it was his, actually. We ended up doing a bunch of playing, just me and him, just the two of us. And we would do like you know three or four-hour sessions where it would just be bass and drums. And during that time, I started to decipher what he did when and what notes I needed to play to be heard around what he was doing. 
And after after a few of those duo sessions, I kind of figured out what stuff I could play that would jump out no matter what he was doing. And it, you know, it's then then I started feeling comfortable about playing with him and uh, finding things that would work. And at some point along the line, I don't, I don't, you know, I actually never did ask him, you know, the exact progression of it. But I guess at some point along the line, he decided that uh, it would actually be uh, more freeing for me if he got another bass player so I could do what I wanted because I was trying to, you know, hold out a lot of, I was trying to insert a lot of information and then it wasn't, you know, I guess it wasn't coming across the way it should have. And I guess the first time I was kind of like, oh, I two bass players. Yeah. But Well, he, he liked, uh, you had to have a, a solid foundation. Yeah, he had to have a solid foundation. But then it turned out when he decided to get the bass player, the person he got was like, you know, one of the crew. And me and, and him really kind of hit it off. And we really developed a thing where it actually made both of our playings better because we, I could I actually played whatever I literally did play whatever the heck I felt like playing and we got a system going where neither one of us would ever really get stuck like being the bass player I mean we would switch off between sections I would play the low part sometimes he would play the higher part sometimes I would play you know and vice versa that so that we could always keep it moving so we could always feel satisfied with within the music but and you were also doing a lot of chordal stuff you were doing kind of the role maybe that people might expect a keyboard to play yeah i did a lot of that because uh for whatever reason i was never really the greatest slap bass player in the world i mean it's uh, i was you know i mean i did it in the we, we can say that now yeah it's safe to say that <laughs> i mean <laughs> i didn't say that in 1980 i mean i didn't have a love for it like a lot of other people did that was part of the problem i just never really loved playing like that i mean i did it because uh it was in style and is basically as soon as I left Defunct, I was, you know, I was I had a uh, was on a mission to kind of stop doing it. I mean, Shannon actually really loved that sound, so I wasn't actually re- able to get rid of it totally, but I managed to like ease out of it. And actually, by the time I got onto the next thing I was doing after I left Shannon's band, I, I basically abandoned it. But Having said that, I would use any opportunity I could not to play that way. (laughs) So, yes, I would do a lot of courting and uh, play in different registers that where it would be obvious that what I was doing was adding to the music just so I wouldn't be asked to go peck, 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 peck. Right, so. so so for you it was great having Bruce Johnson join the band. Oh, it was amazing, and Bruce was a friend, you know, I hadn't really played with another bass player but he was kind of like the perfect partner man it was it was really right. great bass players don't actually know what it's like playing with other bass players most of the time most of the time i mean there are certain things i mean there's the great you know farrell saunders record where it's cecil mcbee and stanley clark and there's a couple of other situations where they're two bass players but it was really effective you know and i like i actually like doing it when it's when it's somebody who kind of understands how to do it it's just really a lot of fun and it makes them yeah i i, I enjoy it a lot and one of you guys playing fretted one fretless was yeah. that bruce uh, was playing fretless i was playing fretted yeah was that uh just the way it kind of happened or is that sort of something that you because kind of both kind of like that's he was into doing it and i wasn't so therefore right. again <laughs> he won that one <laughs> so uh and plus you know it made it so that it was a real difference between the two of our yeah. you know yeah. sonically so that you could really you know, everybody could stand out. I want to 
continue this idea of how the music developed into that remarkable thing we were mm-hmm. listening to. And um, it's so striking to me now listening to this stuff. One of the things that really emerges is the songwriting and song structure, which is just completely unique to my ears. And um, how that came about, how much of that, how specific Shannon might have been and or what other people were bringing to that. Well, he was very specific about his melodies. His melodies, that was his thing. He, he was very specific about his melodies, and he was very specific about his drum beats. Uh, as I said, me and him would spend a lot of times playing just the two of us, so he would work on the rhythms, and he would show me the rhythms, and I would learn them, and I would figure out different things to play around them. So when he actually had found a composition that he thought fit on a rhythm, I, a lot of times I had an idea of what I wanted to do. But because he was such a strong composer, a lot of times he had very specific ideas of what he wanted from the bass or from the guitar. I mean, so a lot of times things would be really mapped out as far as the initial uh, the song part before the improvisation. But also... I would say I would say maybe sixty forty in terms of I would make stuff up and he would have stuff because there were just some things you know that I mean I know the language I knew the language of the bass so it's kind of like there were some things I would think of I would know to do that he would necessarily thought of, think of once I understood what it was he uh, what am I looking for Which, once I kind of studied the melodic language that he felt comfortable with, you know, I started to kind of extrapolate more and not, you know, I would really become more of a free safety, you know, till towards the end, but basically I would, you know, just show up to the gig or show up to the recording studio and just be like, okay, I'm here, I'm playing. And that would be no rehearsal or anything, or maybe one rehearsal. Because in the early days, we rehearsed constantly. But by the end, I was just kind of like, okay, I'm here. And that was it. You are listening to WKCR. I'm Mitch Goldman. We call this show Deep Focus, and our Deep Focus tonight is on the music of Ronald Shannon Jackson, and our guest is Melvin Gibbs. And uh, you rehearsed, quote-unquote, constantly. Yes, we rehearsed a lot. What does that mean? Well, it meant that, you know, Shannon had a room in the music building, you know, in the same building where Madonna had used to sleep, you know, I remember when she was sleeping up in there back in the day, and... uh, Next door to T.M. Stevens and uh, Tony Smith and actually J.T. Lewis might have even been up in that room. So and we would, you know, we had our amps in there and we'd be up there. If there was a tour, we'd be up there every day. If not, we'd be up there fairly regularly. 38th and 8th. Yep. The good old days. I don't yeah. know what the, I don't know. Do people still play music? In I think building? so. I yeah. think so. I walk by every once in a while and yeah. I keep an ear open for it and I, I hear something I hope they fixed the elevator by yeah, now well, but uh, yeah. <laughs> that's another story and uh, I have to imagine that the elasticity and responsiveness and those things that are the hallmark of this band that we hear came from a lot of hard work and dedicated listening Oh uh, yeah, the music was not for the meek. It was not for the meek, it, you know, as far as playing, and it was not for the meek as a listener, and it was not for the meek as far as rehearsing it. Because uh, 
once Shannon started going, he would start going, and he would you'd have to really go with it or get left, pretty much. Or the people that uh, kind of got left by the side of the road. Well, you know, you'd I mean. You'd always lose a few, you know, in the beginning, it, you know. But it's it's ironic because it would depend on the place and it would depend on the country. I mean, you know, uh, for some reason, Germans really loved the music. Yeah, know? yeah. That was like their thing. So we we never lost any anybody in Germany. And they would, you know, it, it would be more like, okay, the crazier it got, the more they liked it kind of. So I meant, I was just thinking, were there musicians who came for rehearsals and ended up going... You know, either they said or Shannon said, yeah, this isn't working. Or... Well, a few, I, I don't feel like mentioning any no. names, but uh, there were, I mean, it was more kind of like us young, electric, loud electric guys. They were kind of like, nah, I'm not messing with you guys and your, you know, you guys, I'm not feeling y'all. But as far as the energy level, I mean, he'd always play with guys who were used to playing on an energy level, so that wasn't as much a factor. I think it was just a kind of like generational thing of, I guess we were rock and rollers or whatever to them. You right. Know? <laughs> also, I had a sense that uh, he couldn't stand anybody from whatever direction they were coming in from, like bringing their little set of licks and no, stuff, you know, you ready to roll out. You had to be in it. No, you couldn't have, I mean, you know, you had to play the music. I mean, the licks weren't going to work because, I mean, licks, you know, once you've done your lick twice, then, okay, you did it already, you know what I mean? Right. Unless you're, you know, unless you're a really studious person like Vernon was where it's kind of like, or like I was at that time. I mean, I listened to some of the things I was playing back then. I just laughed at myself like, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you had to really be thinking about how music worked. You know, you couldn't just, you know, you couldn't come out of the, out of the catalog. You know, it was really about... Uh, examining what you were doing and building it up. Yeah. Do you carry that into your work as a composer, band leader? Is that Well, what I carry from what I got from Shannon is basically, you know, like I was saying about, you know, what me and Bruce used to do as far as really analyzing the the polyrhythms, you know, the the stuff that was brought over from Africa, how we used to use those uh use those ideas and how how to modulate a rhythm, how to take a rhythm and flip it around so that it's, you know, you think about a drum, a drum is basically, you know, one, two, three, four, five, there's six, there's maybe six notes on a drum. And you can do so much with those six notes just by flipping them around in different ways. It's, that was, that was a hallmark of Shannon's yeah. playing. So it becomes, thinking about playing is, that's the thing that's really became important to me, just really figuring out how to take a small core of information and, you know, expand it into something that that's really interesting. And also, like I said, Shannon used to talk about one one of the things that me and Shannon do have in common. And I actually uh, to kind of side note this, uh, I just did a tour with this project Black Sun with Cassandra Wilson and Tubman. And I was explaining to her that uh one of the things that the Sabar drummers, who are the kind of dance drummers in Senegal, do when they're trying to figure out, they play to the women dancing, right? And specifically, they play to the women's derriere. Mm -hmm. And if the woman is really dancing well, the lead drummer will take his hand and put it on her derriere 
and just feel what she's doing and then he will play that. And I remember Shannon talking about watching his, this. he had this one rhythm that he had that was an imitation of one of his aunts used to have this kind of weird little <laughs> hitch that she used to do and when she did it was basically an imitation of that little hitch thing that she would do. So it's really, you know, it's really that idea that music is for dancing. Mm. No, I mean, no matter how abstract it might seem, what Shannon's doing is kind of like, there's always some kind of weird, I mean, I've seen enough Germans do it. There is a way to dance to that music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, there's a, a Ugandan expression yeah. that good music is wasted if you don't dance to it. Yeah. So, yeah, so we definitely try not to waste the music, and that's definitely something that I got from Shannon. And, you know, it's, it's part of a continuum, actually, that I learned many years ago back in Brooklyn. Sun Ra came and played, like, out at the, what's, what is it called now? The African, the African Street Fest, it's called now. It used to be called the East Festival when I was a kid. Right. And uh, I remember one year uh, Sun Ra came out there and played. And that's when they used to have it, like, way out in the hood, out at Boys High. And I remember the place was, you know, Filled with basically, you know, people from the hood, you mm -hmm. know, nothing, you know, it's not like there was a bunch of, there was some jazz fans in there, but it was mostly like just people from the neighborhood. And Sun Rock came out and they had the crazy hats and they were doing a little, we traveled to the Spaceways dance right, with right. the chant and he totally mesmerized like the street audience. And I realized then, you know, it's really, if the music, you can play any music for people if you present it correctly. You know, it's kind of like this. People don't necessarily have some sort of prejudice against music because it's in or out. It's either something they can relate to on some kind of visceral level or something they can't, you know. And as the same thing with Shannon's music, it had that visceral thing where it was kind of like beyond the, beyond judging it if it was music or it wasn't music anymore, you know, which one of the things that I really enjoyed about doing what he was doing. Maybe we should play some more of it. Yes. I have a feeling that's Roger. Roger, is that you? Oh, it is. Okay. Hang on there. Hang on a sec, Roger. Roger Kramer's going to join us, who was here with us two weeks ago, and he was uh, handling the business uh, for Shannon back then and right up to the end. And um, I'll tell him, Roger, you probably can't hear us because you're out on the street but he's going to be here any second and uh there he is i spoke hey. and he appeared hi this roger is by magic <laughs> come on in it's cold out there right <laughs> well why don't we uh why don't we play some music yeah, let people hear what we've been music. talking about what we've been Blah, blah, blahing. Blah, blah, blahing. You want, you want to blah, blah, blah. Okay, I, I've got them all over here. I'm holding all the... They're, they're all... Don't, don't, don't burn your fingers with them. They're, they're, I want to hear this one because... No, where's the one where I was doing my thing? It's this one here because I got some... I was listening to that and I was just chuckling oh, at... Oh, yeah. I was chuckling at myself, which is something you're not supposed to do. <laughs> chuckle at your own playing. But hey, it was a long time ago. What, what is this? Uh, you going to go in order, or are you going to go from the top? As you like, as directed by you. Okay, go to number three, then. Oh, this was what you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. And uh, where are we? What's going on? Okay, where are we? Where Where is the gig? Was that the Chicago show? 
That was one of the Chicago shows. That okay, was that was one. a New Music in America show where I met a Darry John Mazzell. Hey, Darry, wherever you are, I haven't seen you in years, and I hope your son is doing good who's playing music. Anyway, this was actually a really interesting gig for me because we were playing the New Music Festival, ah. not the Jazz Festival. So I got to hear all these other guys that were playing new music. And uh, I got to hear that whole thing, that and start to understand what that scene was about and what the overlaps were and what the differences were. And if anything, it showed me how advanced what Shannon doing was actually was because it was just as new as anything else that... Oh, we got these yeah. classical guys. It was just as advanced as anything else these classical guys were doing. So, yeah, absolutely. And the band is playing particularly interesting that day, so it's worth a listen. Yes. All right. To the Navy Pier. Come on, everybody, get in the WKCR jetpack machine. This is WKCR. It's deep focus, and our subject, Ronald Shannon Jackson, our leader on drums, Melvin Gibbs, our guest playing bass along with the Reverend Bruce A. Johnson on this, and I uh, might as well tell you who else you're going to hear. Uh, once again, it's Henry Scott on trumpet, Zane Massey playing the saxophones, Vernon Reed playing guitar, and banjo and synthesized guitar. This is music you won't hear anywhere else. I'm Mitch Goldman. This is WKCR.
Colonel Shannon Jackson and the Decoding Society. We're going to just here. take that down right there. And uh, <laughs> this is, we are very thankful, let me just say, for whomsoever made it possible for us to have this recording to play for you today. And um, some of this stuff comes from people who are in the audience, and sometimes it's there's a radio broadcast behind it or something. And uh, that seems to have been the case with this new music, America. But that was that was Iola, which was one of actually one of Shannon's favorite compositions of his to listen to. And it was one of my oh, hold on, sorry about that. Solo on. It sorry was one of that. my favorite because I got to solo on it. That's true. There's that. <laughs> and I was I was laughing at when I listened to this in the house. I was laughing at it because uh, back then my I mean back then my solos used to get really erratic reactions. I mean some 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 days people would be like wow. And the other days they would kind of just look at me like, what are you doing exactly? <laughs> <laughs> and I was listening to that solo and I was like, I finally understood <laughs> why I was getting the what are you doing that exactly response from people. Because the thing is just so meta. It's kind of like you listen to it. It's like you have to listen to it twice to get the point of it. You know, even me, I, ha- you know, I listened to it. I had to like, rewind it and say, oh, okay, I get it now. Cause you didn't sound like any other bass player. Your approach wasn't, there was no... Reference point if you were used to the bucket of bucket of bucket. Yeah, there was definitely no bucket of bucket, and it was just kind of like you know, like like you said, it's, it's kind of basically a harmonic thing, but there's just like a lot of information, and also because the part of the I'm listening to that now, the part of the harmonic thing that is actually kept in this band, which is the same thing that goes comes the Dixieland thing, which is the kind of the simultaneous improvisation, so. I'm playing, and I'm actually listening to everybody at the same time. So what I'm playing is actually like this really meta commentary on everything that's going on. So you really have to be listening. If you're listening to me solo as if I'm like a rock guitar player and I'm whittly whittling, it really is going to sound kind of random. But if you're listening to the whole totality of what everybody's doing, and, and my thing is almost kind of just weaving through it, more like a football player running up the field or something, you know. And you, I'm splitting the defense pretty much. Right. <laughs> so it's 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 a really you know, it's it's you know, but that way of thinking is not. I mean, Wayne Shorter kind of plays like that in a certain way, or he did you know, like in the Miles days. He he's got his other thing now, but people don't really associate that way of playing with electric instruments, which is why I understand why you know it might have just seemed really kind of perplexing to people what I was doing at times. That fits with something that you've told me. I don't know if we've talked about it in this context. We haven't talked about it tonight. Uh, mental exercises that you would do oh, yeah. at that time. Oh, yeah. The, my favorite exercise would be to go on the train and listen, try to listen to everyone on the subway's conversation at the same time. I hate to say this. Yeah. I haven't heard anybody comment on this. It doesn't work anymore because everybody's <laughs> but he's got the earbuds. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's talking anymore. It's dead silent. And I realized someone must have done field recordings on the two train back then because yeah. it was it was very different. I mean, we could do a whole show about how different living in New York yeah, is compared yeah. to, you know, now compared to then. Actually, that's somebody. Here's your thesis project. Oh, grad student listener talking about uh, how the music that's played now reflects in New York reflects life in the city 
and something that's ostensibly the same thing, riding the train, totally different experience. And I, I defy you to have that experience on the subway that, no. that I know we all had. No, we can't. That Those days are definitely over, and it is because of the earbuds. I mean, the only time you hear somebody now is when they're like having, well, you won't even hear, you on the bus, you'll hear like, somebody having a random argument with their uh, significant other with the headphones. Right, <laughs> right. And that's the only time you hear somebody, like, talking on the subway. It's like, ah, rah, rah, rah. That's so, a whole other kind of mental exercise, yeah. filling in the other half of the conversation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, that, that was something you would do. Yeah, that was something I would do, and it was very effective because, uh, you know, there's a lot of people talking on the train and just following all the threads. And then once once I got used to it, then, you know, the coding society was kind of like, yeah, okay, I can do this. This is no problem. So, dear listener, maybe you're trying to find a doorway into this music. There is one for you. Try to see how much of this you can hold in your head at one time. It's like a conversation that's going on among you guys. Yes, it is, it is, it is a conversation. Yeah. And it doesn't really make sense without the other parts of the conversation. And, I mean, Shannon is, is driving the conversation for sure, but it's definitely commentary on his playing and it's a commentary on the melodies he's written and it's a commentary on people's commentary you know it's like a big party yeah let's go back to the party let's i, I want to hear there it's a really brief recording it's 16 minutes of music and we just heard like half of it but we do have another half so uh let's go back to chicago it's 1982 we're on the navy pier you're on this uh I'm I'm just picturing a beautiful summer day and out in this pier jutting into the I'm lake. I'm just trying city. to imagine how the Navy got into, <laughs> <laughs> into Lake Michigan. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Yeah. In case the Canadians all of a sudden, you know, start, uh, hey, start some people, stuff. Exactly. Yeah. You guys better keep it calm over there. <laughs> well, you know, defending our borders. No doubt. Or either that or just, uh, you know, I'm sure there was some... Chicago politicians <laughs> that could answer that question, but we'll leave that one alone again for now. So we're going back to, uh, yeah, back to the Navy Pier. It's a uh, show is Deep Focus. We are here with Melvin Gibbs and talking about music of Ronald Shannon Jackson. And uh, let's head on in. Where are you guys? Hmm. Hmm. They got stopped at the border. Yeah. Well, let me try that again. Let me reset that. We're, uh, in theory, this should work. In theory. Neil, what are the titles? Okay. All right. It's coming around. So, um, yeah, this was a radio broadcast, and uh, great thanks. I don't know who the people were that put it together, but, man, I'm so happy we have this to play for you tonight. Decoding Society in Chicago, 1982. It's WKCR FM New York. You did hear that. Yes. It's there. Okay, it's coming. I jumped the gun. You jumped the gun. He's talking about something. We in radio are terrified of dead air. Yes, you should be because <laughs> that fraction of a section is like, okay. <laughs> we just picture fingers reaching for knobs. And here we are.
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I want more of that show. You want more of that show. But I'm so happy to have what we have of it. Yeah, it's pretty great. It's, uh, you know, there was this uh, huge, I was talking about it earlier, outpouring of emotion and memories and Facebook stuff flying around when uh, news of Shannon's passing and um, people who were at the first show that I was at, you know, decades later, we all still have this kind of echoing in our heads. And um, Binghamton, 1981. Yes, of you course. You were there. I was there. And um, it's, and callers calling now saying, are there live recordings or the recordings that sound like what I remember? And uh, there's a, an ineffable quality of this music. There was, first of all, there was an experience of being in the room. That's gone. That that experience that we had is gone. Yes. But um, I mean, this sort of obviously starts to approximate what the music sounded like. But yeah, none of the records quite do it. Nothing. It's it's uh, you know you among other things you're your body's physically vibrating with these distinctive sounds. It's nothing else quite like that. So, dear listener, something, somewhere, is happening that someone's going to be talking about 30 years from now. And you're not going to know what it is unless you go out. you gotta, you got to kiss a few toads. you got to get out there. <laughs> kiss a few hear. toads. you got to listen. you got to... And, and if you do that, you will be part of some magic moments. Yeah, well, then you should lick the toad. Yes. And then you will be part of the magic moment. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, yeah, that experience is waiting for you. It's a transforming, magical experience. Yeah. But you won't know unless you walk out the door and go down the block and go. And if you go and find some music, I tell you. Well, Shannon has good taste in college students, I must say. It's like, <laughs> I met you with it at a college, this fellow, you know? Yeah, you yeah. Know? Yeah, it was, uh, that was kind of the question I was trying to ask him. Yeah. And uh, you missed that, Roger, but I was, uh, he, he had a whole different take on it. I asked him, how, how did you, how'd you know when you encountered somebody who was ready to help convey your message well you know i'm gonna jump in and say something I, i'm actually gonna figure out how to write about this you know but i mean the one thing that really of all of the things about shannon that's, that sticks out to me the most is that he totally got vernon immediately and you have to to put a little context on this i mean we were all kids once we were all semi-struggling musicians once and uh, I kind of eased up into the scene first, and I started like, bringing my friends along, and Vernon was one of the first ones I brought. And a lot of times I would bring him to uh, different gigs, and I would get like a call the next day like, your friend. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what kind of, like, like, it wasn't quite they, happening? They didn't or... quite get yeah. him. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is yeah, the yeah. way it is when somebody's got some new shit. Sometimes you're just like, oh, well, okay, whatever. Sorry, sorry, you, you know, I've, hopefully my dad's not listening because then I'm going to hear about that. Uh, in any case, I remember that uh, Shannon straight up said to me, you know, after he met Vernon, he straight up said to me, 
bring your friend to rehearsal. Mm. And I was kind of like, had you heard him play or this was just meeting him? Really? Wow. Wow. (laughs) What did, what did he say? He just really said, he said, I don't need to hear him play. That's what he told me. He said, I don't need to hear him play. Just bring him to rehearsal. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a distinct, unique thing about Shannon. Um, if, this music is new to you, and you've been enjoying it enough to keep listening to us. Let me back out first and say, you're listening to WKCR. I'm Mitch Goldman. We call the show Deep Focus. We're about three-quarters of the way through the show. I hope you didn't just tune in, because this is some uh, something you're not going to hear anyplace else. Melvin Gibbs is my guest, who was part of all the music you've been hearing and part of the moment of creation of that music. That's what we've been talking about. And if you've been listening to these recordings... Vernon Reed is the guitarist on these, and he went on to do all kinds of marvelous things that are still unfolding before us, but one that caught a lot of people's ears was um, uh, started the band Living Color that uh, made quite a bit of noise and is still making quite a bit of noise. But at this moment, Vernon was uh, in his very early 20s, and there was a very clear sense to those of us in the audience. Again, I'm giving, you had your take on what was happening. I had my point of view of what was happening. It was very clear. First of all, Vernon was doing things with the guitar that no one else in the world could do. Second, that uh, even he was completely astonished sometimes by what he would hear himself do. And third, that... uh, the musical relationship between him and Shannon. It was almost, I mean, at times it was almost like uh, Shannon was uh, operating a marionette or something, the way that he was driving you guys. And Vernon, especially, the harder he pushed, the deeper and the farther Vernon would go. And, and it would reach the point where those guys would disappear into the music and then you guys would, and then everybody in the audience would. It was... It was uh, something that words were never exchanged about, but it was a magical thing. And it stayed a magical thing for a very long time. Yes, it did. And, you know, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, eventually uh, Vernon decided that, you know, it was time to uh, leave the nest or whatever. And he kind of figured out the key of how to present his music in a way that normal person could understand it. <laughs> right, right. And, yeah, and, all and, this was happening, and yeah. it wasn't, uh, you know, you're listening to this music, you hear it's uh, not most people's idea of uh, top of the charts. No. It was mine, but not most people's. Yeah. Maybe it was yours, but Vernon actually came up with something that literally was top of the yeah. charts. But then, you know, as, and in the meantime, you know, I went and, put my little stuck my little toe in the rock world and had a, had a great time doing that too but then you know we I think it was a point where we both kind of felt like hey you know what it's time to kind of go back to the roots because that thing that we were doing I mean we kind of had to do it with Shannon you know there was a certain aspect like you said that push and that certain kind of uh, simpatico that we only got from him, and we kind of want to go back. We are in it now, huh? This is uh, Melvin Gibbs on the topic of Ronald Shannon Jackson. You know that. This has been part two of three parts. you got another one coming your way. 
And all three of these are three of 11 episodes of Deep Focus uh, from this four, three-hour broadcast series done in the wake of Shannon Jackson's passing. Hey, uh, if you're enjoying this, um, first of all, you should definitely subscribe to the program. You can find us, should be on your favorite podcasting app. If not, then please do uh, let us know. And you can always find us at the hosting site, which is mitchgoldman.podbean.com. And uh, you can also find us on Instagram. That's a good place to communicate with us. We see everything that goes up there. And if you go, you will see upcoming program schedule and photos of these artists and discussion about them and all kinds of good stuff. So get on board with that. And if you're enjoying it, please do say so. This music, the Decoding Society, was all about saying what you mean and meaning what you say. If this... This program has some value for you and your life, then we do ask you to give us some likes and uh, thumbs up or whatever your podcasting app allows for. What that's going to do is let more people that don't know about this show know about it. You know, there are millions, literally millions of podcasts, and um, we kind of tend to get lost in the sauce. And and it's um, something you know this because you're in it with with the, 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 the handful of us the selected that, um, you know, this isn't for everybody, but the people that do hear it and feel it, and well, I want to let them know. So that's going to really help. And we don't play any ads. We don't ask for any money. So um, that's the one thing we, you could do. Okay, so go find us over at part three of this program from 2013. 1104, November 4th, 2013. Melvin Gibbs on the topic of Ronald Shannon Jackson. You got uh, another episode from Deep Focus coming your way on this. Okay, see you over there. <laughs>